As many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT CARES Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash untcares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features interviews with the faculty, members, and staff who are a part of Ali at UNT's community of lifelong learners. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking with Dr. Patty Richard, trustee professor emeritus of political science at Ohio University. She was awarded her PhD in political science from New York's Syracuse University in 1975. At Ohio University, Dr. Richard served as dean of University College and associate provost for undergraduate studies from 1992 to 2001. In her scholarly work, Dr. Richard has written extensively about democracy, elections and campaigns, public opinion, and women's rights. Dr. Richard has contributed to many books, including Conflict Prevention and Peacebuilding in Post-War Societies, Repression, Resistance, and Democratic Transition in Central America, and Elections and Democracy in Central America Revisited. She recently published Latin American Political Culture, Public Opinion, and Democracy with John A. Booth. Dr. Richards is in a long line of impressive firsts. She was the first female trustee professor at Ohio University, the first woman to receive tenure in her department, the first female graduate chair, the first female full professor, the first female faculty senate chair, and the first female dean of university college. Thank you for paving the way, Dr. Richard. It is an honor to be speaking with you. Welcome. Well, thank you. It's great to be here with you as well. Well, as I said, it's an honor to have you here. You've done some amazing things. August 18, this coming August, will mark an important milestone in the history of our country. It is the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, the constitutional amendment that granted women the right to vote, and reads, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. So this is a very timely interview. The passing of this amendment followed a very long and extremely brave journey by early women's rights suffragists. It speaks volumes that this wording needed to be put into our Constitution. I recently watched a short historical presentation 
presentation on the strategies and struggles of getting the approvals needed to pass the 19th Amendment. I was surprised to learn how last minute and difficult acquiring many of the essential votes and needed support was in order to pass the amendment through the state legislatures as well as the Senate and the House of Representatives. You're an expert in women and politics in the United States. You taught an Ollie course related to women focusing on the political status of women in the U.S. through time, women as voters, the gender gap, representation, women as office holders in the executive, legislative, and judicial branches, and candidates, and recent elections. That is particularly germane to current events today. So I have to ask you what I know is an extremely broad question, but where do you see women's rights in the current political and societal context of our country today? Well, I think as you were reflecting the original documents that formed our country were ones that did not contemplate women having any essential role in governance. Women were really very clearly second-class citizens. So it is completely true that we have come a very long way. So there is a lot to celebrate. And then there's always looking at the other side, which is perhaps we have not gotten exactly where we might want to be. So I guess what I would say is the long struggle that went to getting the right to vote, which really was a slog. I mean, there were the last minute pieces that you referred to, but It really was something that went back to the middle of the 19th century as an effort and took till the early part of the 20th century to be achieved. And I think that much of that has produced a much different environment. As you said, I do look at women in the political sphere. So if you go back to our origins, women were not part of the voting process Women then, after quite a long time, became voters, and it took a bit of time before women became what they are now, which is the majority of voters. So women now make up more of the electorate than men and have for now about almost, what's over 50 years, about 55 years. So the terrain has really changed quite a bit. However, if you look at the office holding part, more women hold office now than at any point in our past, but women still make up a minority of office holders and considerably less than their percentage in the population. So if you chose people by lot randomly, there would be many more women holding political office today. So there is the side, we've come quite a long way, but we have not, in that particular sphere, achieved something like parity. Do you think that it's different for women in politics running for politics than it is for a man? Yes, although I think these things are in flux. They do change. So it is easier, I think, now for women to run, especially for legislative positions, than it would have been. And people 
are not as surprised at women either as candidates or as office holders. But there's uh, plenty of research that indicates that female candidates do face some particular obstacles. That is, when we think about a member of Congress, a governor, a president, the image we get is often of a male. And it is then still surprising when there's a female who wants to hold that position. There have been some studies that show that women have this kind of double bind when they run for office. And this would be true for women seeking positions of power and authority in other spheres as well, which is that women are supposed to be sort of nice and likable, but these positions call upon both competence and authority. It's a difficult balance. I mean, there are studies that suggest that when people are given an identical description of two people as candidates, the male candidate will be seen as more competent, even though the evidence that's just been presented is not that. Women also, when they run for office, it's more important for them to be likable. (laughs) It's really an interesting phenomenon. Voters will vote for a male candidate that they don't like that much, but they have a higher resistance for voting for a woman who they don't find likable. So there are all these kind of peculiar, different conditions that affect women. And, you know, there are other things as well, like women have still, in general, greater obligations with regard to family. That sometimes hinders women thinking about running, and it may stand in their way of getting as much support. And there's the question of occupations and where women typically work and what kinds of backgrounds voters tend to think are useful for political office holders. So there's a variety of things that probably influence the ability of women to run think about running, to get support for running, and to win. But it also is the case that in recent years, women who run for office win at about the same rate as men when you hold constant things like, are they running against an incumbent or not, and so on. So the position for women running is definitely better than it once was, but there's a quote from Elizabeth Warren, who of course was one of the candidates running for the Democratic nomination for president, and she said something like, there's this gender question, which is kind of a trap. She said, if you say, yeah, there was sexism, then people go, oh boy, you know, she's a whiner. But if you <laughs> but on the other hand, if you say, no, there wasn't sexism. I think she said something like, there's a bazillion women who say, what planet are you living on? (laughs) You know, so it's like, it's there, but how do you handle it? It's just a condition that's there for women in political life that wouldn't be there for men. Are these biases that you mentioned, these voter biases, are they 
held by all voters? Are they held by women voters as well as male voters when you mention the female candidates having to be likable and that kind of thing? There are some differences, but it's not very substantial. It is clearly the case that there's greater resistance or uneasiness about women in executive office than in legislative office. So you can look at that. I mean, the place that you find some data about this is generally for presidential races, because that's where there's more investigation, more surveys, and they may break things out by gender and by age, education, et cetera. In general, women are a little bit more supportive than men of other women running for office. But again, it's not a dramatic difference. I mean, one of the things that was interesting in the surveys that were done when the contest for the Democratic nominee was live and uncertain was about people saying that they were okay with voting for a woman for president, that they didn't have this as an issue, but they believed that their neighbors did or other people that they knew did. So it's just a curiosity that if you went just with what people said about themselves, there would be greater support than if you asked people what they think the other people out there think. So again, it may be that the difference between male and female voters may be a reflection of what people think is okay to say or not. I don't know. That's interesting. I read an article regarding a keynote speech by Barbara Sawyer Alushuski at Ohio University, where two graduates were being awarded the Barbara S. Alishuski Graduate Fellowship. This annual fellowship is to help support and facilitate the work and research of graduate students to be part of a community of scholars and activists focused on gender justice. Barbara Alishuski was making her speech to the Ohio Women in Business panel. One can assume just by the fact that Barbara Alashewski has helped to fund this fellowship and that it's named after her that she must be a successful woman. In her speech, she credits you specifically, Dr. Richard, and your women's study class that she took her junior year at Ohio University as absolutely eye-opening for her. She said, and I quote, It was incredibly empowering in that it helped me find my voice. I started to learn about all of the really remarkable women who came before me and paved the way. That gives me chills. She also said that what she learned from you and your class allowed her to go back to her economics business classes that were full of men, where she was often the only woman, feeling like she could compete with the other students in the class, the males in the class, and be as successful as every one of them. That's one of the most impressive endorsements I've ever read. (laughs) I understand that you and two of your colleagues wrote the proposal that led to the creation of the Women's Studies Program, now called Women and Gender Studies 
studies at Ohio University in 1978. In those courses you've designed and taught regarding women's studies, what was the focus? Well, actually, the first course I think I taught when I started to teach was a course called Women in Politics. And I taught that pretty consistently through the entire time I was there. After I became a dean, one doesn't really have to teach, but I wanted to continue to teach. So I did continue. And that was the course that I kept with. I think at some point I changed the title of it to Women, Law, and Politics because the emphasis had shifted some. There were certainly topics that would have been there from the beginning and that stayed until I retired and stopped teaching it. But in that class, generally, it would start by talking about sex and gender because that seemed fundamental to getting to anything else, to understand what those terms meant and how they differed, and to get at both that there are, between men and women, there are some differences based on sex, but then there are many kinds of differences that are based on gender, which is socially constructed and able to be altered, although not that easily. So anyway, that usually was the start. Then we would talk about questions of what exactly does equality mean, and then talk about a variety of policy issues about employment and work and family, family law, reproductive rights, sexual violence, and then also talk about women in the political sphere as voters and office holders. So that was sort of the scope of the course. Do you see the focus as relevant today in 2020 as it was when you first started in 1979? I mean, what changes or lack of changes have you seen in the role and life of women since then? The course evolved partly because the situation was not static, which you know, in general, was a good thing. But I think a lot of the questions that were there when I began to teach this course were still around when I stopped and still around today. I mean, for example, right now we have the COVID virus and people, many people not engaging in their normal work activities and being home more. And you still find that when, say, both a mother and father or two parents are in a home with their children, the way that the different activities that have to be dealt with and how the children are engaged with, it often isn't just random. Like it could be the male, it could be the female women still tend to take on more home and family activities. And at a moment like this, when there's more time in the home, tends to fall still more on women. That was true in the 70s, and it remains the case. I mean, there are tons of studies that look at how people use their time, and there's still differentials between males and females. So, I mean, that's an example of something that It's not that there hasn't been any change, but there remains a tension and a difference because part of what results from some of those differences is that sometimes when a couple has a child and they're dealing with childcare and costs, 
it's still not untypical for women to stop out of the workforce for a while. And it's more often the woman than the man. And a lot of this has to do with sort of structural conditions, which have to do with how work is organized, have to do with which jobs men and women have. So there are things that have changed and there are things that are not yet all that changed. So I would say that some things are probably less of a problem, but there are other things that remain part of the way in which men and women engage in the world and sometimes are not particularly well balanced. Do you find many of the young men signing up for these women's studies courses in order to make themselves more aware of the injustices based on gender bias? Yes. I mean, I can think of any number of male students I had who were very engaged in the class, really wanted to understand things. I mean, a part of what I always thought was critical in pretty much any class, but certainly in these classes which dealt with women's position, is to consider what's going on and why and try to dig a little bit deeper into the ways in which things are structured and to think pretty closely about what for example, is the meaning of equality? Is it just simply having the same rule for everyone, which is definitely a way of looking at what equality could mean? But if you have people who are in different conditions and different situations, that may result in things kind of replicating themselves And so then it's a question of, well, is that a problem or not a problem? What could you do about it? And I always found that both male and female students were very interested in that and gave very good, thoughtful responses about that. So definitely, I mean, it was a class open to anybody, and both male and female students were very productive in the way they addressed issues. I see the classes being very beneficial in raising awareness, both for men and women, because so much of what is just culturally defined as the way it is and the way it's always been, some people may not stop and look at it and think, wait, is this equality or is this the best way for things to be for all of us? So I think this has a great benefit in terms of raising awareness for both sexes. Well, I think so too. I had some students from long ago who are male who thought this really made a difference for them and how they were thinking about what they were doing in their lives, how they were going to live their lives and so on. We do all live together. I mean, that's one of the ways in which When people talk about groups that have been historically disadvantaged, a lot of those groups have been ones that are living as a group, sort of somewhat separated from everybody else, at least in some ways, and that kind of can set up the way in which they're treated differently. But with males and females, the condition is that men and women live together, you know, not 100% of the time, but most of the time. And so the way that life is for women is very integrally related to how life is for men. Well, right here in our own area, there have been arrests involving the very sad and tragic crimes of human trafficking and violence against women, an all too common occurrence. 
How do you suggest we as a community raise awareness for that, for violence against women and for human trafficking? Well, I think there are a lot of groups that do an excellent job trying to make people aware. A lot of that comes out of people whose economic and social conditions are very poor, making them susceptible to trafficking. So, I mean, there's the trafficking issue in and of itself, which is very critical, but there also is like, what lies behind that? How do these women mostly, although not exclusively, come to be trafficked? They're often people whose home and family is very impoverished. Sometimes they're people who are transgender, whose families may not be helpful and accepting. I mean, there are a variety of reasons that people are more vulnerable to trafficking. So, I mean, there's the deeper dive into why that happens, why they're vulnerable. And then there's how to intercept and remove people from the trafficking situation and move them into a better situation. Well, this is clearly a very pressing issue for women. Do you see other issues that we should be aware of today in this current climate of things? Well, I think that we we really need to consider at this moment in particular, you see that there are certain kinds of occupations patients that tend to be filled more by women than by men, in some instances making them vulnerable, for instance, if they work in healthcare with the COVID virus. But in general, there's the question of why do certain jobs get paid so little? I'm on the board of a childcare center, and I know how pitiful the wages are. And it's partly because somehow people think that anybody can do that. It's just taking care of children. So I think that there are these issues about how we value people and what they do. And having some people work hard, do important work, and not make enough really to keep their own families in a good position is a real and serious problem. So, I mean, that's one thing. I think another thing that has been an issue from early on with the women's movement and continues to be is access to birth control and abortion. And certainly there's no decline in the political intensity around some of those issues. But I think that reproductive rights are critical for women really having opportunities Without reproductive rights, I think women are really in a difficult position. So, I mean, those things have been issues for a long time, and they certainly are front and center issues at the moment as well. With this COVID-19 situation going on right now and the restrictions, I've been reading about that. And it was interesting to note that it's affecting women very greatly. I don't know if I could say, I'm not an expert enough to say more than men, but I'd read that 76% of healthcare jobs in the United States are held by women. 
and that far more are likely to be domestic and service workers. So that would be people in the hotel industry and people in the restaurant industry. And we all know the way that's been affected. And that two thirds of the minimum wage workers in the United States are women with no sick pay. Right. Well, that's sort of what I was alluding to that one really important area of interest is the structure of work, what jobs are valued, how much, the way in which we assign benefits. I think that the notion of having healthcare be associated with employment right now is under really serious assault because so many people who had a job and therefore through that job had health care now don't. And then there were many workers who, for a whole set of reasons, work at a job, but the job does not provide benefits almost of any kind or of any kind and don't have health care. So it is the case that if you look at who is missing health care, who is very low wage, women are disproportionately represented in those groups. What advice do you have for women aiming for leadership positions and positions of higher pay today? Well, one thing I believe is that you really do need to have this sense of yourself as being fully capable and able to take on interesting but difficult positions. I know in the political sphere, if you look at people who have similar backgrounds, and sometimes even backgrounds where the woman would look stronger, the woman may think that it's too big a leap to go after some position, whereas her equally situated male counterpart or even somewhat lesser situated male counterpart feels like, oh yeah, I could do that. So there is a need to have that sense that I can go ahead and do this. And of course, all the standard things apply, I mean, it is valuable to have a good education and to have a variety of experiences and to have a lot of social connections. I mean, all those things certainly, certainly matter quite a bit. I do think that sometimes people are fortunate in having the ability and the opportunity to establish relationships with someone who will mentor them and mentors can make a huge difference. I think it's really much more difficult when people have not had access to some kinds of possible mentors, relationships with people doing a variety of things. If you don't have access to that, it's harder to imagine yourself into that kind of position. So I think that part of it is you do need to have that ability to shift your thinking into well, yeah, this could be me. I think there's obviously lots of research on role models. There are more women in more different kinds of positions today than there would have been, for instance, when I started my career. And that probably is just an overall benefit for women, because if you see somebody like yourself, it's easier to imagine yourself in that situation or position. So that's been a big change. Those things that you read at the beginning that I was the first this and that, I mean, partly it was because it's a while ago and there were, there were fewer people who had come up and gotten into, in my case, political science at a university. 
But now there are people who saw me do that, then there are more and more people doing that and doing lots of other things. And I think that that's a huge benefit for women being more successful in a wide variety of arenas. Well, what you say makes me think again of that quote that I read at the beginning regarding Barbara Sawyer Alashewski's comments about the women's studies class and your teachings being so eye-opening. That was just it. That was what she needed to know. She needed to know about those women who had made accomplishments ahead of her so that she felt like she could go to those classes and accomplish things on her own. I think that's really terrific. Now, I'm going back a little bit in talking about women in politics, which we talked about earlier, because this is a time right now where we are in the midst of all the election process. And I was wondering what your opinion of the standing for women is in politics in the United States. What are your hopes as far as the presidential election? I know Hillary Clinton was the first woman to win the presidential nomination of a major political party. Supporting her or not, that's still a great milestone for women, and that we had a record number of women running for Congress in 2018. Well, that's true. It's kind of an interesting curiosity that there are women who ran for president a long time ago. (laughs) They weren't on major party tickets, but there was, in the 19th century, there was a women's party and it had female candidates. Why did I not know about that? <laughs> because nobody knows about it. You know, it's it's just one of these things that probably does not make it into most textbooks. And so you have to kind of look around for it. But there were women who ran in the 19th century. The only the name that I remember is Belva Lockwood. People did try, even at a period of time when As we know, women couldn't vote. So the notion of running for president was a considerable, a very considerable leap. And then we we get into our more modern time, and we've had a couple of women run on tickets as vice presidential candidates, neither of whom was on a winning ticket. So we haven't had a female vice president. And then in the last election, Hillary Clinton became the first woman to ever gain a nomination of a major party. She, as we know, I mean, she lost the election, but she actually got the majority of popular votes, the number of votes cast. So she was very close to becoming president, but did not. Now, in the election cycle that we're in, we had any number of women running for the Democratic nomination. And I think that is probably a very useful thing in that it's not just that there's one woman, but there are multiple women. And therefore, you have to sort of shift your gaze a bit and maybe consider that there are many different women and each one of them might bring something different. And it's not like just a category, but there's some individuals within that category. However, we did not end up with one of those women becoming the nominee. Granted that this was a pretty strange year with the COVID virus coming in the middle, But the person who was regarded as the for sure nominee of the Democratic Party, Joe Biden, has said that he will choose a woman to run as vice president. So we will have another female vice presidential candidate. 
And I mean, given that Biden is in his upper 70s, if he were to win, the person who is his vice president is in a very advantaged position to try to garner the nomination probably in the next presidential election, but certainly, if not that one, in the one after. Now, of course, Biden may not win, and so the woman who he has as his running mate may not become vice president, but there is a closer possibility of another female getting a major party nomination. But what we've had, so we haven't had a woman as a presidential, a winning presidential candidate, but we have had a woman who has been the Speaker of the House. And in terms of political prominence, importance, power, that's really the position that is the highest that a woman has yet achieved. So Nancy Pelosi stands just a couple places back from the presidency in terms of what the Constitution says if there were vacancies. And she has in the position she has, a very powerful and influential space. So there is the presidency, and the presidency is very important in real and symbolic ways. So we haven't gotten to that, but we do have a speaker of the House who is a female, and that's actually pretty impressive. Well, thank you so much. This has all been extremely interesting and timely, and it certainly makes me want to go back and look more at the history of women in politics with some things that I didn't know, and also is very interesting in terms of raising awareness of some situations that are happening today. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, you're most welcome. It's been a good time with you. Thanks. You're welcome. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, speaking with Dr. Patty Richard. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ollie at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.